will be in Colossians 1. Colossians 1. We'll be mainly looking at verses 15 through 17. Verses 15 to 17, but we'll read uh, the majority of chapter 1. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue to walk in the faith, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we laud you for what you have done in Christ, what Christ continues to do, and what Christ will do. Father, may we, as we approach this most glorious text, Lord, may we, with reverence in our heart, bow before you in reverence and awe. May you be lifted up and your Son preeminently lauded for who he is, simply in himself. 
We ask this, O Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I have to make a confession. I must admit that this passage for this evening ruined my sermon. I had planned to preach from verses 15 to 20, even verses 15 to 23 possibly. And I thought I knew where I was going. Uh, I thought I was going to go in one particular direction. And I had a basic idea of where we needed to go. But there are some passages that demand our attention and more reflection. Colossians 1, 15-17 is such a passage. And so if this message is a little bit stagnant, a little bit clunky than normal, I apologize. Uh, just know that I had to rework this probably a thousand different times just to get an idea of where we need to go with this passage and so that our Lord would be honored. If anything, I just hope you enjoy the rod. But if by the end of it, after we bury our heads in this text, after we bury ourselves in God's Word, my aim is that we arise in the presence of God. So let's begin. Previously, we looked at Paul's prayer to live worthy lives because of the redemption found in Jesus Christ. Paul concluded his prayer by reflecting upon Christ as the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, verses 13 and 14. And in verses 15 to 20, Paul's reflection turns into a laud, a laud, a short burst of praise for who Christ is and what he has done. And Paul's laud, Paul lauds this Christ who demands our attention. Paul presents Christ in all his glory because ultimately the Colossians were being lured away by vain philosophies and demonic principalities. Their attention was being pulled away from true glory. Like the Colossians, our attention to our attention to Christ is often compromised because of our simple apathy and the world's gilded glory. But Paul snaps us back with this laud. He snaps us back so that we might behold Christ. And so this is what I want us to see tonight. We laud Christ because He is the divine Creator. We laud Christ because He is the divine Creator. In verses 15 to 17, Paul laws Christ because He is the divine Son, and two, that He is the sovereign Creator. So for our first point, we laud Christ because He is the divine Son. In verse 15, Paul uses biblical categories to describe Christ's status as the second person of the Trinity. And that's where that little sheet of paper that I handed out, or that Mary handed out and created for you, is to help you. I won't spend much attention on it, but it's there so that you might understand the connection between language and ideas and concepts that we see here in the passage. And so picking up from verse 13, Paul is speaking of Christ in relation to the Father as the beloved Son. But what kind of Son is Jesus? The New Testament often speaks of Jesus' sonship 
Not in reference to his divinity, to his deity, but to reference to his messianic status. As the Messiah, Jesus was the promised son of David, right? He was the promised son of David who would establish God's kingdom on earth. And Paul has already focused on Jesus in this messianic sense, verse 13. And he will also move in that direction, what we'll see in verses 18 to 20. So clearly, Paul has in mind sonship as Messiah on his mind and when he's writing this to the Colossians. This is where he wants us to focus, is that Jesus is the Son in the sense that he is the resurrected and exalted Messiah, the Son of David, the one, the true King of Israel. But Paul's law in verse 15 pushes us to an even greater sonship. A sonship that Jesus' own messianic status simply pointed to. In verse 15, we see two glorious titles given to Christ. He is called the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Both titles use biblical language to describe the same idea about this Jesus. That He is the divine Son. And so first, let, let's take each of these in course. First, the phrase image of the invisible God is clearly an allusion to the creation of Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. Adam was the reflection of God's glory on earth. As the image, Jesus reflects God's glory. But in the New Testament, Jesus' image can refer to His incarnate and exalted form, just like the title Son. So what do we do here? So here, in this passage, this is what we need to see. Here, Jesus should be seen as the pre-existing image. Because Jesus existed as the eternal image of God before all things, including His own incarnation. Also, uh, just a, a simple point, image should be understood as likeness or representation, not merely a physical depiction as we are. As earthly image bearers, we possess and represent the nature of Adam. Likewise, Jesus possesses and represents the very nature of God. That's where, we go, where we're going with this language of image. He represents and possesses the very nature of God. Adam reflected God's glory in a creaturely way, in his physical form, as we all do. But Jesus, as the eternal image of God, he reflects God's glory with no need of a body. Adam was a picture where Jesus was the real thing. It's as Hebrews says, Christ is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint or image of his nature. The second title shows us more connections between Adam and Jesus. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean that Jesus was the first creature. Clearly, we see that he was antecedent, that he was before creation. But this idea of him being firstborn means that he had a unique right or rule as the firstborn. In the Bible, the term firstborn... Um, it often meant, uh, it denoted someone who has preeminence or one who has a distinct rule. Think of uh, the firstborn who would have 
preeminence over all of his father's land once he dies, right? The firstborn would get the double portion. Also, Adam is often understood as the firstborn of all creation. Adam, as the firstborn, was to rule over all the earth, right? He had a particular right to rule. He had a particular dominion as the first man. And so the theology of the firstborn is not so much about being first in time, though there is an aspect of that that we see there in verse 17, is that he is before all creation. Christ is before all creation. But it's more so this idea of being before creation by being the firstborn of create or, or in creation. It's this idea about the right to rule. Not so much about being first, but the right to rule. So as the firstborn, Jesus had a divine rule and preeminence. Unlike any creature, unlike Adam, it was supreme. So to pull this all together, the Scriptures call Adam the Son of God, right? Luke 3.38. As a son, Adam was made in the image, in God's image, and was the firstborn in creation. As a creature, Adam reflected God's glory on earth and had dominion over the earth. But Adam, the historic Adam, was a pattern, was patterned after the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus reflects the Father's glory because he is of the same essence of the Father. Jesus has the divine authority because he possesses divine power in and of himself. In short, we laud Christ because He is the divine Son. Brothers and sisters, remember when you were first converted. You saw Christ for who He is. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes to behold the Christ and to take hold of Him by faith. You chased the vanities of the worlds previously, but then Christ shone His light upon you in the darkness. His light is not the light of men. He did not save us as a mere man, but His light shone upon us in His glorious divinity. Christ captivated us because He is so otherworldly. He is not like us. He is something so much more than what this world has to offer, what this creation has to offer. His glory becomes the very purpose that we exist because He is first. The Colossians were dealing with a false teaching that called into question Christ's preeminence, the glory of God. They were being told that Christ was not enough These false teachers were exalting other sources of so-called glory and so so that the eyes of the Colossians were taken off of true glory. And brothers and sisters, we have this temptation today. It's in our very hearts. Who here has not felt a coldness of heart towards Christ? Who here has not felt distance from Christ in their walk? At least at one point. It's a feeling as if we are left in the dark. And this is what happens when we take our eyes off the light. 
And we take our eyes off of Christ because we think that there's something more somewhere else. And it's so subtle, brothers and sisters. We take our eyes off of Jesus' glory by making something else just as glorious as Jesus. It's something that we at least conceive of. Think about it. Sin makes us feel cold and distant from God. And it should. When we follow the false promises of sin, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Sin promises the world, but never delivers the glory of Christ. You want easier work? Cut corners. Want to avoid tough situation? Lie. Want more gratification in this life? Indulge in porn. Want to show your dominance? Brutalize your neighbor. Want a life that isn't so demanding? Then listen to the words of Satan and choose whatever your heart desires. But brothers and sisters, sin promises a feast, but its food turns to ash in our mouth. When we indulge in our sin, apathy towards Christ always sets in. Sin makes the heart cold and the eye dim to His glory. It makes our ability to enjoy Christ diminish. It makes us longing and cherishing Christ grow smaller and smaller while we search for other sources of glory to compensate. Because we do not savor Christ as we once did. If we don't savor Christ in this way, as when we first came to know Him, when we first saw the light, when our eyes become dim to His glory, we must supplement Him with false sources of glory, with vain glory. We look at Christ in our own performance. We look at Christ in our own standing. We look at Christ in our own righteousness. We become like prisoners in a cave. We may see the sunlight trickle in, but inside we must still warm ourselves by building a fire for our own making. Like primitive apes. Brothers and sisters, this is not the Christian life. The same glory that captivated you at the beginning is the same glory that will take you to the end. So do not grow cold because of sin. Do not place yourself back into that cave. Do not substitute the radiance of Christ for your creaturely efforts. Don't do it. Nothing can truly compete with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are here tonight and you feel this coldness of heart, this sinful apathy, then repent. Repent. Turn from your sins that you may be healed. Have your heart thawed under the splendor of Christ's divine light. His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. Remember who you are dealing with. 
He is your God. Remember that He has shown you His glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, be ashamed of your sin. Be ashamed of your sin, but in your shame, do not hide yourself from Christ, but look upon Him. For it is only by gazing upon Him that that shame melts away. Do not hide yourself because of the shame of your sin. Do not use it as an excuse not to look back to Christ. Because this glorious God of ours came to cold and distant sinners such as us. Oh, brothers and sisters, repent from your sinful apathy. And remember the true glory of our God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, He has come for us. He has shown His light and we have perceived His glory through His grace alone. You cannot perfect it on your own. Run the race by the same glory that you began with. So then, Paul lauds Jesus as the divine Son. And he goes on to explain why. So for our second point, we laud Christ because He is the sovereign Creator. He is the sovereign Creator. In verse 16, Paul's worship of Christ is based in his work of creation. In the biblical mind, to be the Creator is to be divine, and to be divine is to be the Creator. So Paul applies this logic to Christ. He grounds Christ's divinity in the fact that He is the agent of creation. Why is He divine? For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So in verse 16, I want us to note two things. I want us to note what Christ created and how He created it. First, notice what Christ has made. He has created all things. There's nothing that exists that was made out of, outside of Christ's hands. By referencing the heavens and the earth, Christ is being identified as Yahweh from Genesis 1. Also implied here in this heavens and the earth, implied here is that God has made both the physical and spiritual realms. And this is brought out clearly by the next phrase, the visible and invisible. He has created both. So Christ's creation consists of both the physical realm where we live, where we exist, and the spiritual realm where angelic and demonic forces reside. The next phrase is key to where Paul is going uh, in his letter to the Colossians. Paul is describing, uh, Paul describes the spiritual realm and the powers that exist, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. We should not read these as physical kingdoms or powers. We should read them as spiritual principalities. Paul is confronting false teachers who said that there was another source of glory other than Jesus. There was some other spiritual reality more tantalizing than Jesus. But if there is a spiritual power out there, 
wherever it is, then it must be Christ who made it. He is the sovereign ruler over it. Second, notice how Christ made all things. We see three prepositions described, describing how God, how Christ created all things, including these spiritual powers. All things were created in Christ, through Christ, and to Christ, or for Christ. So first, by in Christ, we should say that all things were created by Christ. Theologically speaking, and just hold with me tight here, Theologically speaking, it is from God's being that all that is not God, that is creation, has come into being. In other words, creation only has existence because God exists. As Paul quotes the philosopher at Mars Hill, in God we live and move and have our being, existence. Two, second prepositions. All things were created through Christ. Christ is the agent by which creation came to be. And in, as verse 17 says, He is the agent who continues to hold all things together. And then three, all creation is to Christ or for Christ. Creation exists as Christ intends it. Christ will lead His created order to His intended goal, which is His glory. No one else. So for the Colossians, they were not to be swayed by the spiritual powers because the power, these powers' ultimate end is destruction by King Jesus Himself. And all praise be to His sovereign glory. Paul offers a similar warning to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 6, turn there with me. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, we read these words. Um, uh, he reminds the church that they are not waging war against flesh and blood, but, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul calls the Ephesians to fight against the spiritual forces that stand against Jesus. And likewise, Paul is calling the Colossians not to fall into the trap of these same spiritual forces. See Colossians 2.8. This is where Paul is going towards. See to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So these spirits were ultimately that were taking the Colossians captive were demonic forces, spiritual powers against Christ. Brothers and sisters, the false teachers were presenting the world's gilded glory as a substitute for Jesus. These spiritual powers were certainly real, but that did not make them true. We ought to watch out for false religion and enslaving philosophies, heresies. Not because there are no real spiritual power behind it. There are. These are not just vain imaginations of simple men. These are satanic lies spoken through foolish and vain men. 
So we ought to not be to ensla- we ought not be enslaved to these spiritual powers. Ultimately, as we see from this text, because they are in subjection to Christ. Christ is the sovereign creator over every aspect of creation. All of our lives are in complete subjection to Him. All of the powers above us, both natural and supernatural, are in subjection to Christ. Nothing outside of His sovereign hand can come against Him. He is the greatest authority. So, you do not have to give yourself to a lesser authority, no matter how alluring or seemingly powerful they may be. In other words, brothers and sisters, we should not buy into the gilded glory of this world. The world promises so many things that glitter that are not gold. We can have money, power, and gratification now, but this is not of Christ. We can have self-importance, prestige, and honor now, but this is not of Christ. We are to see the riches of this world as vain glory. The riches of this world will rot away. And the spiritual powers that stand against Christ will be destroyed by the same Christ on the last same great day. So, brothers and sisters, for those who worry, for those who worry about the state of the world, let me just give you one simple command. Stop it. Stop it. Christ is in control. If you fret over the power of Satan, you you may fret over the power of Satan. And so we need to be on guard, but we should never be dreadful. You should be aware of the growing demonic forces that stand against God, against God's covenant of marriage, against God's design of male and female, of God's ordering of the family and the nation. But dear Christian, hear me. Do not fear that these powers will have the final word. At the very end, Christ will conquer. His intention will not be thwarted. Why? Because He is the divine Son and the sovereign Creator over all things, both physical and spiritual, over the angelic realm and the demonic. We will see at that last great day we will see that the greater the evil powers and principalities, the greater threat they are to the church, the more glorious their fall. And on that day, all of Christ's creation, preeminently His church, will shout out with joyous hallelujahs because Christ has defeated His enemies. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, Lord Christ because He is the divine Creator. We ought to repent from our sinful apathy because Christ's divine glory is the only thing that satisfies our renewed souls. And we should take confidence in Christ's grand design for His world. All the lesser spiritual authorities that stand against Christ will end and will fall. Do not be held captive either by their influence or by your fear. Oh, brothers, brother and sister, 
Stand alert against Satan's attacks. But here's this command. Stand confident that our Christ will win. Brothers and sisters, who is on that throne? King Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may the intention of this feeble minister of this word, the intention for us to see and behold your glory after diving into this text, oh, Father, we ask that you would indeed have us arise in the presence of God to behold your glory not to be held captive to the vain things of this world or even to a false glory that we build for ourselves. But Lord, may we simply look upon Christ in saving faith, knowing that the same light that transformed us will bring us all the way further and further into your glorious light at the end of the age. We ask that you please be with and strengthen the brethren here. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.